I think we're both on the same page that we agree that it's bad right now, right? But can I ask you a question? Jane Marie Barnes, and this is the Wine and Politics Podcast, where we bring two people on the political spectrum with differing points of opinion, or even completely across the aisle, and have a conversation about politics, and hopefully try to find common ground. But the catch is that you must be drinking wine. And I am super, super excited to have this guest back on by popular demand, Dusty Wright. Hey, everyone. Hello. Woo! (laughs) Happy to be back. Thank you for having me back. How are you feeling? Are you excited? I'm very excited. Nervous, excited, all of those. Same as before. Same as before. I don't feel as nervous and anxious as I did before. Yeah, I agree. Okay. More comfortable this time. I think I'm sitting in a more comfortable position, too. (laughs) Don't feel like you're just stuck. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to hold the microphone closer to my mouth this time. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Well, Dusty, I'm super pumped to have you back. And I'm excited to talk about some other things, too. I know last time we had a great conversation about a bunch of different hot button topics. And this time won't be any different. We're going to talk immigration. We're going to talk about alternative energy sources. We're going to talk about more of an analytical topic, a survey about what people say and think privately versus publicly, which thank you for bringing that. That's cool. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting when I first read it and figured it'd be fun to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, so do you want to just go ahead and jump into it? Where do we start? (laughs) How about immigration? All right. (laughs) All right. So to give listeners the background on immigration and specifically illegal immigration, I, from the conservative point of view, I feel there is an absolute crisis down at the southern border. I think our border towns are completely overwhelmed by the influx of illegal immigrants, We've seen like four and a half million people crossing the border alone this year. Those are both documented and undocumented. And I, our border towns are just completely overwhelmed. I think El Paso is like at 3x capacity. Some other towns are completely overwhelmed as well. And the administration, in my opinion, has done nothing. Yeah. And those are all facts, right? Almost every single one of those, except at the very end where you say the current administration has done nothing. But it's very hard to argue with any of those just from a factual standpoint and even comparing, you know, where we're at now to where we were at six months ago or a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. It's it almost feels cyclical. And I don't know why it's cyclical, but like there's times where over the course of a year where immigration gets really bad and then it goes down a little and it's not as bad as before. I don't know if it ever gets to a good spot, illegal immigration, but it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. I don't know if that's reactions to what's happening in the countries where people are illegally immigrating from. I don't know if that's reactions to the current political climate and potential legislation or talking points that are coming out of the United States, but for whatever reason, it gets bad and then it gets a little bit better and then it gets bad again. But I think this is probably the worst it's been in a long time, right? Ever. Ever. Okay. <laughs> that is, that is, that's a really long time. It's a lot of, a lot of years that's, in history. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. 
And the reason I say ever is because we've seen, like I said, four and a half million people have crossed the border, let alone in 2022. And when I last looked at the numbers in August, the United States Customs and Border Patrol had reported over two million unique encounters in 2022, which was more, way more than 2021 and exorbitantly more than in any previous year prior, which makes me think that the migrants feel like it'll be a lot easier for them to cross the border now than it ever would have been before. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know what's causing this particular spike, but I think it's a mixture of that, thinking, you know, now's the time that it can be easier. Also a mixture of if I don't do it now, maybe they are going to crack down on it or maybe it's going to stop. So it's kind of a now or never type thing. One of those two things. Like Uh, take advantage of the fact that Biden is a pro-illegal migrant president. I don't think I'd call him a (laughs) pro-illegal migrant president, but I was using the example of when it spiked under Donald Trump. And I think at that point in time, it was because at the very beginning of Trump's administration, because they thought that it was going to be much harder to get here illegally, or if they got caught here illegally, they wouldn't be able to claim asylum or anything. They would be deported immediately. So maybe that time it was, you know, they thought it was a now or never type of thing versus this time where maybe they think it might be a little bit easier i don't i don't know but yeah high <laughs> worst it's ever been is definitely a lot of years yeah definitely and with that comes a lot of additional issues we've seen a rise in drug smuggling like fentanyl we've seen a rise in human trafficking we've seen a rise in crime we've seen rises across the board in people getting caught for federal crimes like criminals on terror watch lists have been caught crossing the border it was either this year or even in just one month 42 people on a known terror watch list were known to have crossed the border. And there are reports as recently as last week that the Maduro regime in Venezuela has been releasing really violent criminals out of their prisons and sending them via caravan up to our border. Wow. I mean, so I I think we're both on the same page and we agree that it's bad right now, right? But can I ask you a question? Sure. Like if we could snap our fingers tonight and fix everything, like have it in what in your mind is the ideal state, like what does that look like? I think right now, unfortunately, like we need to just crack down on immigration in general. There's too many people at our border who have completely overwhelmed these border towns that it's not safe for anybody. And so if I could snap my fingers, it would be literally halt immigration, period for now like legal immigration as well as illegal immigration right now because there's too many people coming over way too quickly and it's a humanitarian crisis too you saw those 50 something migrants that died in the trailer outside of san antonio like that's bad horrible yeah and i have complete compassion for these people i know not all of them are criminals and they're crossing the border because they're looking for a better life and they might find one but they're also being trafficked there are also people who are actual criminals who are crossing there are people who are just taking advantage of these people like the cartel Mm -hmm. who are making billions of dollars at the border i mean there are so many issues that have come with this whole situation that right now it's we just have to crack down And then hopefully, you know, once we apply the pressure and we let it rest for a while, I don't know how long, then maybe we can come back to enforcing and encouraging more legal immigration, but also having to have a little bit more quality policy when it comes to that as well. I think generally I agree with with all of that, right? With the Mm -hmm. exception of the shutdown legal immigration until we can control all immigration and then bring back legal immigration. But like what you described where we completely fix the problem of illegal immigration and we start to have smarter policies in place for legal immigration, I think most people 
agree with that. That sounded like what you were describing. I agree with that completely. I think most rational people, whether or not you lean left or right, agree with that. It's where all the disagreement is all the steps that it takes to get to that place, to get to that place where illegal immigration isn't a problem. It's not happening, which, you know, it can never be stopped completely. But, you know, everyone agrees it's at a place where it isn't an issue anymore. We have better methods in place for legal immigration and processes in place for claiming asylum and taking in refugees and stuff. Like everybody wants to get to that spot. Most normal people want to get to that spot. It's just there's so many steps to get to that spot. That's where all the disagreement starts to come in. Like when you say, let's completely stop immigration legal and illegal so that we can get to that better spot. Like that's where you and I disagree. Tell me more about what your thoughts would be if you could snap your fingers. If I could snap my fingers? Yeah. Uh, I can't I can't snap <laughs> my fingers. Not very well, but I don't think he it would He can't do snap his fingers right now because he's uh, holding a glass of wine. <laughs> If I could snap my fingers and, and fix everything, it's it's similar to what you just described. Like illegal immigration wouldn't be a big issue. It would be something that can be controlled. We look at the numbers of people that are coming across illegally, and it's significantly lower than probably it's ever been uh, within the past 30 years. The number of, of migrants that are attempting to cross and are dying, you know, that, that number goes down. But like down to what? What's your benchmark? I don't have a benchmark, but just, yeah. I mean, the well, idea that we're going to build the Great Wall of China on the border of Mexico and the United States and no one's going to be able to get across it isn't realistic, right? So Yeah, and I don't think anybody realistically thinks that we can actually have a border wall across our entire southern border. I can make a one person. Who? Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you got to listen to the episode I did with Brandon, but Mm-mm. he talked a lot about the border and placing a wall of some kind or some barrier in strategic areas yeah. because it is practically impossible to do that. And it's so expensive to do that. And yeah. so having a better policy in place where you can protect our border, where we can protect our border with a wall and then reinforce it with federal agents as well as making sure we have the technology to monitor people who are going to be trying to sneak in the border that way. I mean, I know illegal immigration isn't something you can just completely like flat out stop, but building a wall across the entire southern border is going to be really hard to do and probably really unrealistic. I agree. And see, we're kind of agreeing about some of these things. For me, it's the same way. Like if I could slap my, snap my fingers, <laughs> illegal immigration isn't a problem now. How did we get to that place? It's through reinforcing the walls that we currently have, maybe improving on them, building them in places we don't have them, increasing the number of agents that are down there trying to catch people trying to migrate illegally. It's it's finding a way to tackle the drug cartel problem and, and the smugglers problem, which this is a total complete tangent. But have you ever read those articles about how much it costs those? people to like attempt to cross the border it's like anywhere from two thousand to ten thousand dollars crazy it just it blows my mind a certain amount would be a struggle for me to yeah. save up for so when you when you think about what those families went through to get that much money and you know there's a non-zero percent chance that they die there's a non-zero percent mm-hmm. chance that they don't make it and there's a decent chance that they get caught and sent right back to where they came from like that's that has always blown my mind There's so many people that are getting caught crossing the border illegally that are making it here illegally. And when you think about all the steps that they had to go through, thank you, Scott, pour me some wine. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) When you think through all the steps that they, and like, that's, that's one of the more jaw dropping things is that many people are going through that many steps to try to get to this country illegally when there's a whatever percentage chance that they won't make it for one or a dozen different reasons. Yeah. The one response I have to that is I understand the compassion that we all should have for our fellow human beings especially when they go through they jump through all the hoops literally all of the hoops 
and then endanger their family and endanger themselves trying to get here. But we have to be cognizant of our own country and making sure that our country citizens are staying as safe as possible. Because I know in Dallas, and I don't know if you felt it too, but I don't feel nearly as safe as I did even at my house than I did a year ago. Are we saying that's all illegal immigration? I'm saying it could be illegal immigration. It could be and, to it. Well, because it's everything. It's just the, the crisis, the open border, the people who are coming in, the drugs that are coming in. I mean, I'm seeing more people around who are just kind of out of it all the time. I almost yep. ran over a homeless person who was asleep at 6 a.m. outside my garage on a Tuesday. Like, yeah. that stuff doesn't make me feel safe. Crime is up, and it's not because the border is safe and secure. Yeah. So have you been experiencing that too? Well, I live in an apartment complex, so it's a little... I don't have people randomly knocking on my door. But like if you go out or if you're walking around. I agree. Yes. Generally speaking, in Dallas, I've experienced some of those things. I don't know that my mind snaps to illegal immigration when I have those encounters. I won't disagree that it could contribute to it in some level. I, I would say the border, the crisis at the border and everything coming across it, illegal immigration, human trafficking, drugs... People who are actual criminals who are coming across, that's all contributing to it. That's why, you know, a lot of these South Texas regions and districts are starting to turn red because those borders and those districts are feeling like the Biden administration isn't doing enough. Yeah. So I would love your thoughts on that, actually. I mean, I'm not going to disagree that what is being done now isn't working because it's not. More needs to be done. I agree. And, you know, what we were just talking about, how any rational person would like to completely make illegal immigration under control. It's hard to disagree that what's happening right now isn't working just by looking at at the facts, the number of people that are coming here illegally. I just I don't know if shipping a ton of federal agents or National Guardsmen down to the border is a one size fits all solution to it. I don't know if completely cutting down on legal immigration until we get illegal legal immigration under control is the solution to it. It's probably a combination of a couple of different things, but you know, it's hard to talk about what would fix it because I don't know if we've ever had it fixed. Yeah. Um, It's just interesting to see what's going to happen, like what the ramifications of this will be in 20 years. I'm interested to see that. Okay. I'd also love your thoughts on the Martha's Vineyard thing. See, and this is, (laughs) oh, so... I like the common ground, right? Any rational person would like, and I know I've repeated this 40 times on the podcast, but just to show that we both agree, any rational person wants to cut down illegal immigration as much as we can and have better policies in place for legal immigration. What are the steps that we take to get to that place is where people start to agree. I think the other big disagreement is what do we do with the people that are here? And I'm not talking about the people that are smuggling drugs across the border or are criminals in their home country or are here committing crimes. I'm talking about the actual millions of people that are here. Some of them have been here for over a decade. They're still here illegally. They may have families. They may be plugged into the community to a certain extent, but they're still, from a legal perspective, a technical perspective, they're still illegal immigrants. Like what do we do with them? I don't think rounding them up on buses and sending them to Martha's Vineyard is the smartest way to do that. I think it's definitely a way to get your point across, and I won't disagree with it being a way to get your point across, but I don't think that's the most practical use of those funds or the most humane way to do that. But if we strip back that political stunt, because it was a very effective political I, stunt I mean, I, from, yeah, from it was. what it was, and talk about the concept of taking these communities that feel overwhelmed with 
with a high volume of immigrants there and maybe trying to identify the people who are here illegally that have been here for a certain period of time and have not been causing issues and would gladly pay taxes and assimilate and integrate into the community if, if they were given the chance to do so legally. Identifying those people and not migrating them, but potentially transporting them to the other areas of the country that aren't overwhelmed with immigration. I don't think that's a horrible idea. But then why don't those people go through the legal immigration process? If you're talking about, you know, treating those people, I mean, treating everybody with the utmost respect, but especially those people who are really looking to assimilate into the culture, like they still immigrated illegally. Yeah, they still immigrated here illegally some odd years ago. And, you know, there's probably a bunch of different reasons why they didn't go through that process at the time or haven't tried to go through that process since then. For the ones that haven't tried to go through that process since then, legislation goes back and forth about whether or not those people can stay here legally, can receive benefits, can go to school, like we have the Dreamers Act and everything. And so even the periods in time where we have that legislation in place, where they have a, a process to do that legally at the time, there's probably still a lot of hesitation to do that because the process could change tomorrow and now they're registered and on a list and now the government like people knows know they're, they're there. there yeah in terms of them not doing it legally at the time i mean there could be any number of reasons some of them probably have truly been here long enough to where this wasn't something that 20 year olds were sitting down and talking about on a podcast because it just wasn't <laughs> as big of a hot topic as it is now other ones there may have been something going on in, you know in their home country that forced them to leave and they felt like they had no other choice it's hard to migrate here legally and there's so many people that are trying to come here legally so it and then though too on that note about because i do want to come back to the martha's vineyard thing because i have a I have a point on that but before i get there on the note of legal immigrants versus illegal immigrants what about those people who did go through the whole thing and did migrate legally and they're seeing what's happening at the border and they feel almost a sense of injustice yeah like it's not fair because I had to go through that. Because I did it by the book. You know, I went by the process. I did. I abided by the rules. And these people are getting in scot-free. They're allowed to do whatever they want. They can go vote, I think, in California now. So it's just, I think we can have compassion for all humans, but understanding that this is affecting a lot of people on a lot of different levels. Yeah. I mean, I feel very strongly that people that have been in this country illegally for X number of years. I don't think I can come up with a number of years off the top of my head, but probably going to be more than two, maybe more than four years that have jobs, even if they're not receiving their paychecks legally, that have families that aren't violent criminals. You know, they should be given a path to citizenship and a path to reside here legally. I don't think they should be deported and then forced to go through the legal process. Yeah, they 100% jumped the line. They didn't have to go through that process legally. You can argue about which is the more difficult process because we just talked about how hard it is to immigrate here legally and then also how dangerous it is here to immigrate illegally. So, (laughs) you know, there's pros and cons to both approaches. But yeah, they jumped the line, but they're here now. They're in certain ways a part of our community. And I think it's more inhumane to send those people back to a place where they may no longer have a community there. They won't have a place to stay. They won't have a job. They potentially could be in danger by government or gang violence, may not have any family there anymore. I I don't think it's humane to send those people back. And I don't think it's a detriment or a risk to our country to come up with a way for those people to stay here legally and become citizens or at the very least legal residents. Yeah, I get you on that. And I probably do agree with you. Once those people have been here for however many years, then it doesn't doesn't do anybody any good at that point, in my opinion, to send them back. When I ask about the legal immigrants and their feelings as a whole towards this big illegal immigration problem, I'm thinking about the ones that are coming over now and have been part of that big trove. 
let's just say less couple years i know let's just say less than two years people that have been here for less than two years it's an arbitrary number i'm not saying that's the right number of years to pick but for argument's sake let's say less than two years but yeah so going back to the martha's vineyard point yeah I do agree with you. It was a political stunt, but I also think it was the best way to get their attention because now we are seeing that New Hampshire is sending down part of their National Guard to help with the border. Mm -hmm. And you're getting the attention of these people who are so far removed from it that it's like this problem that's in this far off land that doesn't impact them in any way until it does. Yeah. And now it is. And Martha's Vineyards, they're self-declared as a sanctuary jurisdiction and so is California. California is literally a sanctuary state. Yeah. Chicago is a sanctuary city. New York is a sanctuary city. They say that they welcome anybody. And mm-hmm. on a practical level, it kind of makes sense to send them to sanctuary cities that they have the capacity for instead of leaving them on the streets of El Paso. Because El Paso literally is so overrun right now yeah. by the amount of migrants there. It's inhumane to leave them there. And I agree with you to a certain extent, like the concept of taking immigrants who desire to stay here legally, even though they got here legally, they haven't broken any laws yet. You know, they're not a danger to the country. The concept of taking them from places that may feel overwhelmed and sending them to places where they'll be more protected and communities that don't feel like they're overwhelmed. That as a core concept actually isn't the worst ideal in the world. Like there's some really good points to that concept but throwing them on a bus not knowing whether or not they're going to give a job not given wherever they're going a heads up that they're going to be there and sending them that way that i don't think that was a humane approach to deal with it so the core concept actually might be a good idea that a lot of people could agree with the implementation of it by desantis in that specific example was a political stunt with some really inhumane qualities to it. So you're saying you would have felt a little bit more on board with the Martha's Vineyard situation if they had said, hey, by the way, we're sending migrants up here. If Texas and California, Texas, Chicago, Texas, and you know Martha's Vineyard got together and agreed and said, hey, Chicago has the capacity to take in 200 immigrants that are here legally. They won't be deported because they're here. We've got social services in place to help them assimilate. And you know maybe we'll be able to figure out a way for them to claim legal residency. And Texas and Chicago both said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And Texas identified 200 of those immigrants and Chicago took them in. Like, that's a really good idea. I just don't think that's ever going to happen. And, and I agree. I don't think it would ever happen. <laughs> I think when you're in a situation, you're never going to get, you know, the mayor of Chicago saying, yeah, 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 go ahead and ship them here. We've room for them. But yeah. still, where do they go? Because you really can't deport them. It's a federal issue once they're finally here border security is a federal issue the governor of texas the governor of florida the governor of arizona nobody has the ability and the power to exercise to deport people so what do you do with them once they're here yeah and what do you do with them once they're here and your cities are being completely overrun el paso if you look at pictures it's sad there's like hundreds of people staying underneath bridges and just standing on the side of the road because they have nowhere else to go So did they stay there? I don't think so. I don't think so either. It's just, (laughs) I don't think we can throw one of us and send them to Martha's Vineyard, which probably doesn't have many social services in place for helping those people out. Chicago or California probably would have been a decently better choice. I don't think there's a humane way to do that. I will say zooming out a little bit on, on a more political scale, and maybe you disagree with me, but I think another motivation for people who are looking to encourage any kind of immigration, whether that be legal or illegal, especially on the border, is they know that Texas is a red state. And if you're 
a blue Democrat in office and you're promising people, hey, come to America. You're going to be taken care of here. And the first place that they get to and probably stay more than likely is a red state. You can start changing the voting demographics of that state. So it kind of makes sense for a red administration in a red state to send migrants to blue states because that's almost playing the political game back. Does that make sense? Oh, like it would cut down on the the blue voters that are there because they're in the like, red state because they're going. So let's say you've got a migrant from El Salvador and yep. they say, Biden told me I could come. He said I could come. So I love Biden and I'm going to stop my journey in Texas because I've done the hard thing. I've gone all the way up through Central America, passed through Mexico without dying, bribed the cartel to get me across the border. And now I'm free. And nobody's going to do anything. It's so easy. I mean, obviously, I'm here illegally, but sure. I'm safe now. And so I'm going to settle in Texas. But I still love Biden. And he's my president. And I'm going to vote for him. Texas is red. But that's one blue voter. And if you think about the numbers, millions of blue voters are coming across the border. Yeah. And you can turn a state blue with those kinds of numbers. And when you're sending, when Governor Abbott and DeSantis and all of them are busing these migrants or sending them up to blue states, they're almost responding back to that political move from the Democrat administration. You're saying, okay, well, I'm going to send you to Chicago because Illinois is blue. I'm going to send you to New York because you're going to vote blue and New York is blue. You're keeping my state red. But those people can't vote. I mean, in California, they can. and In Texas, they can't. In Texas, they can't because of our voter ID laws and stuff. But once they do gain citizenship, the Democrat Party feels like they're entitled to that voter. Yeah. Once they become a voter. Hmm. Interesting, right? Interesting thought. I don't think we should be letting people into the country because we know that they'll vote on the side that we support or not. I know you're not saying that. You're just saying that's potentially what's happening. I um, mean, I'm, it probably is what's happening. I'd like to think people are not corrupt and power hungry and want to stay in power forever, but we are humans. I mean, so you think Beto or think he's saying like, I'm not going to support any legislation to control illegal immigration because once those people get here and if they're able to stay here legally, then that's another vote for me. Yeah, I think he's not directly saying that, but... I mean, it's just a dark thing to think about. I mean, there's for sure politicians out there that have that same train of thought, and there's for sure politicians out there that probably have that subconscious train of thought that don't even feel like they feel that way, but probably influences the way that they vote. I think politics... You've seen House of Cards, right? Yeah. It's a game of power. Yeah. I didn't finish it, but... I didn't uh, finish it either. It got a little too dark for me. And then like the Kevin Spacey thing. (laughs) Right. Stop watching it after that. That too. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. Yeah. I guess that argument, I'm a little bit more sympathetic. I wasn't happy with what DeSantis did with Martha's Vineyard, right? But that argument, and that still doesn't make it right, but... That argument that, you know, some Democratic politicians have been using illegal immigrants as political pawns, so to speak, and DeSantis is just leveling the playing field. Okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, that plus the fact that it was an effective political stunt. Okay. Still shouldn't have done it, but <laughs> I guess can... the Democrats shouldn't be doing certain things too, so... <laughs> We can agree to disagree on that. And I'm not over here saying it's just the Democrat Party. I mean, I think politicians on either side can be very corrupt. And the longer you're in politics, the easier it is to be corrupted. Yeah. And I feel like that just is the way that it is. It's easy to cling on to power and get greedy with it once you have it. You don't want to let it go. Yeah. I think that just means you're a better human than everybody else. No, I mean, it's just... 
I don't think there's just a ton of corrupt politicians. Like I know there's a bunch of them, but I don't think it's the majority. We're going way off into a tangent here, but that's okay. <laughs> but like, I mean, it costs so much money to get elected at a national level and so much effort and campaigning. It's like I get elected to, is it Congress is every four years, Senate's every eight or six? Senate is six, Congress is two. Two. I or get, House of Representatives. Yeah. So I get elected. Awesome. Like I went through all that effort. I've got like three months to figure out what I'm doing, three months to potentially vote certain ways before everything that I do is under a microscope and impacts my next election and I need to start campaigning and raising funds and trying to get elected again. And so you're almost at the mercy of however the districts have been drawn in the place that you live, whatever the hot topic is on CNN and Fox News and OAN and MSNBC and all those, you're at the mercy of that almost from the moment you hold your position in office. And so exactly what we're talking about, like, I think it's pretty messed up what DeSantis did, but like if he wants to win his elections, he kind of has to do it. It's so interesting too, and this is another sidebar on this same tangent, that what you're talking about, the U.S. House of Representatives, since they get elected every two years, they are constantly having to think of their re-election and constantly having to think of their campaign donors who are going to place ads for them in places that they're going to reach the most people. And even the example was AOC, and I don't know your opinion on her, but last time I checked, which was probably over the summer, She'd only sponsored or co-sponsored one piece of legislation since being in Congress. But to your point, she's out there in the media all the time. She's a face. She's somebody who people on the left really look up to. They see her as the young face of the party, as a Mm -hmm. progressive Democrat. And it's because she takes center stage and takes the opportunity to make sure that she's in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, there's only 24 hours in a day. You can only do so much in a day. And probably, I think on both sides, the most well-known and successful politicians are probably the ones that spend a larger percentage of their time on the optics and the campaigning. You don't get reelected sponsoring and co-sponsoring legislation. Right. uh, For the most part. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so coming back to the politically driven thought of illegal immigration and security at the border, (laughs) we have to acknowledge that there is at least a tiny element of wanting to maintain power. If you can turn a red, deep red state blue by promising for future voters that you're going to be the one taking care of them, you have so much more control. Your party has so much more control if you can turn a state like Texas blue. Yeah, don't disagree. Yeah. So that made me think of something. So, And I mean, I haven't read about this in forever, so I'm probably going to butcher some details. But do you remember when there was the bipartisan it was six politicians on both sides of the aisle senators that came together and had a framework this is before dreamers had a framework to one address illegal immigration and to come up with better methods for legal immigration it was like tim ryan was the name that was attached to it and i don't know what your opinions are on tim ryan he's I don't think I know much about him. He's retired by now, so it doesn't really matter. But it was like six. They came together and they, both sides of the aisle, very well-known politicians from both sides of the aisle, came together, had that framework. It was like the Dream Six or something. SEAL Team Six. I'm probably getting that confused with SEAL Team Six. Like Dream Team or something? Yeah. But like they came together, had the legislation, it fell apart the last second, and that was probably the closest that we've been in the past six, seven, eight years, however long ago that was. I remember Joe Manchin talking about it, right? Yeah. He was a big proponent of that. 
has anything changed that we can't get back to that spot? Despite all of the needing to stay in power, needing to be like, can we get back to that potentially? And I honestly, I think part of the reason why it fell apart is it wasn't a very popular opinion on either side of the aisle. Isn't um, that the best kind of bipartisan I mean, legislation? When, yeah, it is. You know, when you're compromising, you're yeah. not exactly happy with the result, but you get the most important objective of yours. I mean, America was designed to grind to a halt unless there is compromise. That's the whole point of the yes, country. That's the I, whole point of the government. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you sit there yelling at each other the entire time and never compromise, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. That's kind of how it feels right now, doesn't it? But can we get back? Can we get back to that bipartisan thing? I think I'm not going to blame it all on Trump, but the wall thing made it harder. It's a turnoff for people that don't support that. I, and I get what you're saying. It's like it's not it's not literally building the Great Wall of China across the border. And it, you could even argue it's like a metaphor for increasing the funding towards clamping down on illegal immigration. But if your goal is to reach compromise and come to like a bipartisan agreement and actually make some progress, that campaign sticking point was such a horrible way of doing it. I disagree. And I disagree because even Democrats back in the early 2000s were saying they should build a wall. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and Obama have all said that we should build a wall in the past. And I understand that your positions can change on things, mm -hmm. but when leading Democrats in the party are kind of saying the same thing that Trump said, and then he got called all of the names for it, it feels a little hypocritical. Okay. And that's the only thing I have that I disagree with in that argument. Okay. And I mean, that's fine. Like, I wasn't saying it's not all Trump's fault and we're probably not going to agree there. So that's OK. But I was just wondering, like, can we get back to that point? Yeah. It, eight years ago, 10 years ago, however many years ago, we were like kind of close and maybe it wouldn't have worked and we'd be right back where we are now. But it's almost like there's been no attempts since then. It mm -hmm. feels like there's no attempts. I'm not someone that watches the news every single day or stays as plugged in as I can be to what's happening politically on both sides of the aisle. I think I also watch the news and read more than maybe the average person my age. From my perspective, it feels like we haven't tried since then. It kind of reminds me of our conversation the last time you were on about yeah. cancel culture. Yeah. And I agree. A lot of our country's divisiveness between parties is driven by what we see going on in our politics. Yeah. Everybody's pointing fingers. Everybody's saying these people are fascist. These people are racist. These people are hypocrites. It's just kind of nuts. See, and this is why I know we're not going to get to this to the end, but some of the stuff that we're talking about here plays into that study okay. that I sent you. Okay. I definitely want to get into that. Yeah. So do you want to move on into energy? Sure. So I would love your opinion on our current energy situation. To give background, Trump was really big in domestic oil production and fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a major push on the left for renewable energy sources to combat climate change. Yeah. I'm just interested where you fall on the spectrum of that whole issue about renewable energy versus fossil fuels. I mean, I support the idea of transitioning off of the usage to fossil fuels towards renewable energy. You know, it's hard to say you support that without bringing the climate change aspect right. into it. But like if we completely if we try to completely remove the concept of climate change and just talk about it like fossil fuels or renewable energy, let's do renewable energy. Like, why does it have to be fossil fuels? So I well, support that that transition. Okay, so can I offer an alternative? Sure. What about nuclear energy? Yeah. What are your um, thoughts on nuclear energy? I have limited understanding of it, but I know we have Chernobyl and we have the Three Mile Island disaster and then we have the Fukushima disasters. What I've been told is that it's a lot safer than most people realize it is. Yeah. 
and when I was doing my research, like a video I was watching, somebody made this point. When we talk about the end of the world and the end of humanity as we know it because of climate change, there's so many other ways that humanity can go out through drought, through like a solar flare. I don't even know. Aliens. I mean, yeah. (laughs) You know, climate change, regardless of what you think about it on one side of the aisle or the other, is one of a potential of possibilities where the human race could be just completely extinct. And because of that, we're willing to say, oh, no, nuclear energy isn't safe enough when there are so many other ways that people could die from anything. Yeah. And so also in my research, talking about Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima, Mm -hmm. in Three Mile Island, the commission that was in charge of reporting that came out like four weeks after the media hysteria had kind of calmed down and said that there actually was way less damage than initially thought and there was no threat of a hydrogen explosion at all yeah so it was more of just media craze is what it turned out to be but the media didn't report on it because it wasn't as sensationalized well and then chernobyl have you seen the hbo miniseries that they did about chernobyl it was like two or three years ago when it came out i haven't seen it i think we tried to watch it and i haven't y'all should try it it's really good but i mean that's just a whole disaster in and of itself that probably wouldn't be repeated in yeah uh, modern government and the point on chernobyl that i saw was that they had dramatically exaggerated the initial leakage from the nuclear plant and the real reason that it was as catastrophic as it was was actually due to Soviet Union-specific safety protocols that would not ever, literally ever, be replicated in the West. Yeah, and, I mean, the show, like, gives you oh, a lot of insight. Okay. it says that. It talks about it. I mean, it. That's the whole point of that's the show. That's cool. It's really well done. But, yeah, I think this is... I really hope I don't mess up the country, but I want to say this is a big topic in Germany. Okay. Because Germany has a... Or at one point in time, had a large number of nuclear power plants, and they're in the process right. of decommissioning them. And there are... You know, a lot of people saying that that shouldn't happen because it is safe. It's been done safe in Germany all this time. And if the whole point of addressing climate change is to move away from the usage of fossil fuels, shutting down your nuclear power plants is not the most effective way to do that. No, even on the subject of countries, France apparently gets 70% of its energy supply from nuclear resources. Yeah, and that's great. And apparently the waste isn't as big of a deal as you would think it is. Like even in the U.S., I think we get 20% of our energy is from nuclear energy. And with that number alone, we have a football field's worth plus 70 feet high of nuclear waste. That's it. Yeah. That's it. One football field. Compared to all the land fields that are in the United States, yeah. it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people when they talk about renewable energy, they're, they're lumping in nuclear energy. See, okay, so my perception of that is when people are talking about renewable, it's more like wind energy. It's like solar energy. I mean, I think it's definitely that too. So I'm probably not a good test subject for the left side of the aisle on this conversation because there's a very weird argument that I like, which is you almost want to wait until the last second to address global warming. And I'm going to butcher the explanation for this argument, but it's as you attempt to tackle global warming, it gets cheaper. Like when you look at how expensive wind energy is, it's cheaper than it is now. Electric vehicles are a lot less expensive than they were. And so as we move closer to a point of tackling, so like right now, if we were to completely move off of fossil fuels, it would be ungodly expensive. It would be potentially impossible. Yeah. And so instead of doing these insanely aggressive and dramatic 
Green New Deals and and all these other climate change proposals. Let's find ways to stimulate and encourage people to continue to conduct research and find ways to migrate from fossil fuels and like slowly increase the percentage of reliance on renewable energy. And then hopefully we get to a place where it's cheap enough to actually move completely off of the usage of fossil fuels. And it's not too late to do that <laughs> at that point, but that's probably not what most progressives view. But so like it kind of frames my energy argument where I'm all for moving off of fossil fuel and and moving to renewable energy, I have trouble finding the arguments for like staying on fossil fuels, but maybe I'm not as code red, Mm -hmm. danger midnight, whatever it is, Danger uh, midnight, threat level midnight, uh, as it is then, then, then yeah, DEFCON one, then a lot of people (laughs) might be, because I think it'll continue to get cheaper and, you know, whenever it does get tackled, which that's one of the pain points that I have with this argument is like, eventually we're going to be off of fossil fuels by a large percentage, whether we like it or not. I don't know though. What do you mean? Right now, 84% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. That's a lot. Yeah, and that's only down from like 2% from 2002 when this whole global warming, climate change agenda started getting pushed. Yeah. And a push for renewable energy as well. And oil itself powers 97% of all global transportation. And I also think we don't have the infrastructure in place to support this huge push to relying on a power grid. Right. And that's kind of what I was getting at where like the cost to implement that infrastructure now is ungodly expensive. And, you know, maybe 10 years from now it's cheaper. And then 20 years from now it's a little bit more cheaper than that. And then 40 years from now we haven't burned down the entire country and, you know, the Grand Canyon's still there and the gorge is still there and everything else is still there. And then we can implement those changes, but it's a, a slow burn slow burn. I think it's nice. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's a change that takes time. And so I think it's kind of stupid arguments from both sides of the aisle where we don't need to be doing this because it's too expensive mm-hmm. and all the jobs that will be impacted and all these things. And the other side is saying we need to do it as soon as possible, even though it's going to cost $300 trillion. Right. Like, there's really bad arguments on both sides. Whereas yeah. like this is actually one of the areas we just talked about how America is designed to kind of like do nothing if people don't reach compromise. This is actually probably one of the areas where we've been having stupid arguments on both sides of the aisles and we still made progress. And so honestly, we could probably not find a compromise on this. And in 10 years, you know, maybe we've moved 6% in the right direction because I think this is one of the areas that it's just going to change over time, no matter what, no matter what we do on either side of the aisle. And so we can come together and, and find ways to make that happen a little bit quicker that are sensible and practical and economical, or we can keep doing what we are doing and, yeah. and move at a, a slower pace. But I think we're going to reach that point one way or the other. And I also think aside from the cost conversation and how much money it would actually take to do this, we don't have the ability to. We both live in Texas. We were there for the winter storm of 2021 and even the rolling blackouts over the summer when it got crazy hot. And even California, which had literally just added legislation saying cars that are not electric vehicles cannot be sold after 2030 or something to that effect right and literally i think it was like a month later their power grid was unstable and the government was telling people don't charge your electric vehicle please within these hours or whatever it was 
Well, and even if you move completely to electric vehicles, they're plugged into a power grid to gain energy that's ran off of mostly fossil fuels. So like Mm -hmm. that's another one of the things where I agree with you is why are we doing this insensible, unpractical, expensive legislation to move things when either it's too expensive to do so or like we don't have the infrastructure in place to do so. Because even if we snap our fingers and we're all using electric vehicles tomorrow, that's going to make a significant change in the carbon that we release into the atmosphere. But those cars are still going to be plugging into a fossil fuel dominant power grid and it's not going to be, it's not, everything's not going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And the problem's only going to get worse. I know we are making the push to being a little less reliant on fossil fuels, but the demand for energy as we continue to technologically innovate over the years is going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Think about how many things that you plug in to your outlets. Think about how many times your phone loses power in a day. Mm-hmm. Think about when you buy that electric vehicle, how much power it's taking up when you have to plug that in, plus your phone, plus your computer, plus your TV, plus your Roomba if you have a robot vacuum. (laughs) Think about all of these things that take power. We need energy in order to sustain ourselves now in this day and age. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. I I actually was curious. I work at an internet company kind of company yeah and i looked up the stats for what the carbon footprint is for the internet do you know that the internet is responsible for one billion tons of greenhouse gases each year that's 2.2 trillion pounds that's a lot of greenhouse gases yeah the internet you just google something yeah and that's emitting carbon emissions. I mean, yeah, when you think about all the infrastructure and servers that it takes to run the internet, a Google search is a release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Absolutely. Yes, which is why... My phone just lit up as we were saying that, and that was, <laughs> there it is, 0.00001. But it, it is, yeah. It's crazy. And so we have to be able to keep up with demand, and I don't think that renewable energy is the answer. And additionally, with a lot of people on the left who are environmentalists and support the Green New Deal talking about renewable energy sources, you have to mine the minerals that go into the manufacturing of wind turbines, of Mm -hmm. solar panels. That's like arsenic, aluminum, graphite, lithium. I mean, you have to mine that stuff. And that's tearing up land Mm -hmm. everywhere. So what are you going to do? It kind of just feels like a catch-22. Almost. Kind of feels like the earth is going to die either way. Uh, (laughs) We just got to keep it going for as long as we can. Not really. I don't really feel that way. It's very dark of you. I'm sure there are some people that feel that way. But I mean, I just think that the push for nuclear energy makes the most sense. The fact that it's not a more well, serious why can't it be like a combination of thermonuclear, solar, wind, and nuclear. Like it I like the be, nuclear idea. It can be, but I I don't think the renewable energy sources, such as wind, solar, geothermal, whatever it may be are enough to sustain the demand we will need as a society and already need. Yeah. Nuclear, I think, is the only way to completely replace fossil fuels. Yeah, and I'm not totally opposed to that. And I mean, we're sitting here saying that nuclear is safer than most people realize, but we don't have a great understanding of why that is. So hopefully... Well, even the Fukushima accident, apparently nobody actually died from radiation. They died from the tsunami. Yeah. And so the three examples through Mal Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, that people cite as the reason to avoid nuclear energy, those examples are hard enough evidence to turn away from that. Well, I think they're all avoidable. Yeah. I mean, it's like citing the 737 MAX crashing for that specific reason saying I don't fly planes anymore. Right. It's the same thing. I mean, you can't eliminate yeah. risk. 
completely. Like, I'm going to use the plane analogy and this is a stupid analogy, but like we started having planes for commercial travel and the percentage of commercial airliners that crashed was high and we kept building at it and working at it and that percentage went down till now it's safer to fly in a plane than it is to drive in a car. And so the nuclear concept and this, this analogy probably applies to a ton of different things, but I'm applying that analogy to the nuclear concept where the history of the earth, we've had hundreds, maybe thousands of nuclear reactors that have been operating for some period of time. Three of them have had major disasters. If we completely shut them down, that percentage is gonna stay the same. But if we like keep finding ways to perfect it and make it better and address the risk and eliminate risk and minimize risk, that percentage is only, it's only going to go down. It will not go up. Let's just say it's 3% right now. That percentage at this point in time, like from this point forward is never gonna be higher than 3%. It can only go down. That's and so, so true. Yeah. And the other thing too, is I think it makes us, every, every country who decides to really invest in nuclear energy, it makes them energy independent. Yeah, and then you don't have to worry about someone shutting off your pipeline and stuff. I mean, look at Europe. Winter's coming. You know, Game of Thrones is happening. And Putin is the Night King. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the majority of Europe is literally dependent on Russian oil. And Putin, when he holds all the cards, he can do anything he freaking once. And so the new prime minister of the UK, she's actually come out and lifted bans on fracking and other ways to help the UK become a net exporter of energy. And so that's just an example. And I do think in the short term, fossil fuels still need to be a huge part of the resource pool that we have. But if everybody wants the future to be clean, then I think it needs to come from nuclear. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily disagree. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? So how do you feel? Because obviously we live in Texas, so there's some very Texas-specific arguments and potential impacts to encouraging the use of renewable energy and cutting down on the use of fossil fuels. So obviously there's potential impacts to the Texas economy as we migrate off the usage of fossil fuels. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that. It's fine if you know. I, yeah. I, I had a thought, so <laughs> it's a segue um, into that. No, I would say because our economy is so dependent on oil, and fossil fuels, I would say we cannot be the leading state in that. I think we'd have to look and see how other states implemented certain strategies to eventually wean off fossil fuels. But in the future, I mean, I think if we wanted to be an exporter of energy and maintain our economy, nuclear energy. Yeah. That's what I think. And I mean, I agree the same. So the thing that I wanted to bring up for that lame segue into that is, and the stat's at least three years old, so it could have changed, but it probably hasn't. There are more people employed in the state of Texas in renewable energy than there are in oil and gas. And when you think about how Texas is the king of oil and gas, wow. that stat seems a little bit mind-blowing, but like... That is really crazy. You need engineers in both jobs. Every single field of work that someone has in oil and gas is needed in renewable energy. And so this is always my argument that I give. And I'm not giving you the argument because I think we're agreeing for the most part on Mm -hmm. on a lot of these points. But this is always the argument that I give to people, you know, maybe from Houston or may have grown up in an oil and gas family or kind of give the Texas economy type argument to not using nuclear, to not moving towards renewable energies, whether it's nuclear or anything else. But there are more people employed in the state of Texas in renewable energy than oil and gas. And like Houston is the king of oil, but there's nothing stopping Houston from becoming the king of renewable energy. Like Mm -hmm. all the manpower, all the brain power, all the infrastructure is there. And so what is to stop the city of Houston from becoming pro-renewable and encouraging 
Tesla and any other type of renewable type energy from moving there and investing a ton of money and giving them tax breaks and giving them stimulus money and encouraging people, you know, that are mechanical engineers to migrate into the renewable energy field. I feel like there's a lot of people in the state of Texas that are saying the Texas economy is going to be ruined whenever we do migrate off of renewable energy. And it's like, if you sit there just yelling that, like, yeah, we probably are going to be ruined. But if Texas finds a way to become renewable energy capital of the United States, we're going to be the same exact way as we were before. We might even be a little bit better off. I, I think we agreed mostly on, mm-hmm. on a lot of this argument. So I know that's not a counter argument to anything you were saying. It's just that's always been my kind of argument to yeah. people that have taken the Texas economy type argument towards that's it. That's a very interesting point. And I never really thought of it that way. You know, just from a job's perspective, you know, the same skills would be needed yeah. across any kind of energy related profession. I, I don't think fossil fuels are ever going to completely go away, though. I really don't. Yeah. We depend on it too much. Our infrastructure for everything. I mean, it would take a hundred years to fully implement a new type of infrastructure across even just our state to yep. be able to support renewable energy, even nuclear energy sources. You know, we'd have to rebuild the way that we build cars, roads, trains, highway systems. Everything would need to be rethought. Yeah. And so the funding that would need to take place in order to put Texas on that path would be probably more expensive than just bringing it in, if that makes sense. Yeah. It kind of goes back to the point you were originally making at the beginning of this topics mm-hmm. conversation about how if it's if it gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, it might be more of an incentive to invest in it. Yeah. If you were to put my opinion on this, just black and white, I am pro- finding ways financially to encourage people to research and implement renewable energy, whether that's tax breaks, whether that's stimulus, you know, there's been ways it's been implemented badly in the past that you can point to, but that core concept, I'm, I'm pro that. I'm not necessarily pro stopping drilling. Yeah. You know, we get to fracking and some of the other things that gets a little bit more tricky, but at a core concept of just like abolish the oil companies, I'm not pro that whatsoever, <laughs> but I am pro using the federal government as a method to find ways to help make renewable energy cheaper. And, you know, over time, again, I think this is an area where people have been arguing for 200 years and we haven't stopped arguing and we haven't made much progress, but we've still been migrating towards renewable energy despite that. And so I think we're headed that way. Maybe not completely off the use of fossil fuels, but we're headed towards a direction where a larger percentage of our energy comes from renewable energy. And so Texas would be prudent to take advantage of that trend and embrace it and help prepare our state and our economy and and our environment and our future for (laughs) the point in time when a much larger percentage is going to be renewable energy. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's a good stopping point. Okay. Thank you for that discussion on energy resources. I honestly wasn't even thinking about it from, you know, a tax break, incentivizing through financial opportunity lens. And so it'd be interesting to see if Texas does go that route. Well, and the nuclear is always something that honestly, I see it on Twitter and on the internet, uh, you know, just random people talking about how it's safer than people imagine. Not random people, smart people. Um, <laughs> but like, it's just something that I see from time to time, but it's not in the, the top of my head. So yeah, it I'm should glad. be. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you made that point. It just seems like the resource that makes the most sense. Yeah. So anyways, okay, so let's get into the survey. Okay. I'm gonna let you drive. 
Oh, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I sent you a survey that yes. I thought was really interesting. And in all honesty, I read this a while back and wanted to talk with you about it eventually. I don't have the article memorized. That's okay. Um, I have notes. Word for word. Okay. I have it pulled up. So oh, perfect. It's a study. It's called What Americans Really Think. Axios reported on it. The source of the article was from Axios. And so it's the difference between public and private opinions. And so the core concept is polling people about certain political opinions, but polling certain people in a way that they feel like their opinion is less anonymous than it is the other way. And we don't need to get into the methods of of how they achieve those two things. We're not asking the same people, hey, how do you feel about abortion in public versus in private? It's asking separate groups of people that, you know, from your sample size are demographically the same and identifying a trend where the same person that gives an answer about how they feel in a way that's not anonymous, that feels more public and identifiable, might give a really different answer if they felt like they were being pulled anonymously. And so like there's a couple of ones here. Well, let's start with this one. So abortion should be left up to a woman and her doctor. Publicly, 67% agree. Privately, 58% agree. I was reading that as less people in private have a pro-choice Yes, yes. Leaning. Yes, by 9%. And then when you start breaking it down into demographics, it gets a little bit interesting because men who say that abortion should be left up to a woman and her doctor, 60% agree with that publicly. Only 45% agree with that privately. So that's a pretty significant difference. That's interesting. Um, of 15%. And it makes sense too. I get it because when you have topics that are such hot button topics in the media and being sensationalized and... You know, you're seeing all these people in uproar about Roe v. Wade getting overturned. It is probably intimidating, I could imagine, to feel like you are going against the grain. Or maybe your opinion, you don't have as strong of an opinion one way or the other if you're a man or something. Yeah. And so it's okay to kind of remove yourself out of it and have your opinions to yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at with this. And so just to put a few more out there, here's one. Uh, CEOs should take a stance on controversial social issues. So this is the whole should companies come out in support of social causes, environmental causes, et cetera. 28% agree publicly, 14% agree privately. That's a lot. That's a big it's difference. It's a big difference. From people who identify as Democrat, 44% agree publicly, 11% say they actually care privately. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you. Yeah. As a Democrat, do you feel like you have to publicly say things one way or the other that kind of go with what the Democrat leaning viewpoints are in public? Like, do you feel like you can relate a lot to this survey as a Democrat man? Maybe. So the whole reason I wanted to bring up the survey is because I think there's a ton of different arguments or takeaways you can take from it that are all really interesting and all valid. But the biggest one, especially in this specific stance, if you you were like, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? Let's talk about whether or not companies and CEOs should take a stance on social issues. If you're getting polled about it or like you're being asked in the media or you're voting about it, it becomes a very black and white issue when you make it more gray. I'm definitely in the I don't care (laughs) group, but like it's hard to express the I don't care opinion publicly. And so I think that is one of the issues in the public sphere when you're posting about things that you support on social media, when someone's asking you about what your political opinions are, stuff like that. It's it's really black and white and abstracted. And when you're just having a conversation privately about how you feel about something, it's way less black and white. And so it's like on certain political issues, yeah, I think CEOs and, and companies should take a stand. But on most political issues, I don't think they should care. I agree. 
Yeah, not not to move into a tangent, but I don't even think companies should be allowed to donate money to political action committees. And, and well, that would really help with the corruption issue that we were talking about earlier. So yeah. I'm agreeing with you on that one too. Yeah, there's a whole argument that democracy died when that Supreme Court case that said that corporations are people and could donate happened. I can't remember the name of the, the court case. I can't remember either. But so like that's for sure one takeaway you can make from this. I'm going to do two more ones from here that I think are interesting as well. Mask wearing, whether or not it worked to stop COVID-19, 59% agreed publicly, 47% agreed privately. I don't know if you have notes on if there were any interesting demographic ones. I have the 44% of women privately Mm -hmm. feel that wearing masks were effective compared to 63% of women who said it publicly. So fewer women privately thought they were that effective. Yeah, that's a significant percentage as well. Yeah. Um, But again, that's the whole, like, the public needs me to wear a mask, and I don't want to be seen as one of those crazies that's arguing with people in stores and getting thrown off airplanes. Mm -hmm. But, like, when I'm sitting here at home, it's like, I don't know, maybe. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. There's conflicting data, I don't know. (laughs) No, it's, it's very interesting. I think nobody wants to be a Karen. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's that you could probably sum up that entire conversation into this. Because um, I think that's also this, this last one I wanted to bring up is the one about schools, whether or not parents should have influence over what their children they're being taught individually. I have parents. Yeah, go for it. When I looked at the report, it said parents are privately more supportive of having more influence over their children's curriculum at 60 percent. Yeah. So 60% of parents think that they should have an influence over their kids' education in private. Yeah. But 52% say so publicly. Yeah. So they care, they act like they care less in public. But they care more privately. Uh Yeah. And I think that one also lends itself to the Karen argument, which is you see all these crazy people that are standing up in school board meetings and and trying to get, you know, have a list of books to get banned from public school libraries and and stuff like this. And you don't want to be that person. And so you you shift to the other side of the argument where in reality, you're somewhere in the middle. You do have feelings. And so the Karen argument, I think, is a great takeaway. And I think a lot of people form their outward political opinions around what is seen as the less extreme or the less crazy or the less Karen Mm -hmm. versus how they may actually feel privately. Yeah, I agree. I also think they probably, at least from a conservative point of view, when it comes to the lesser amount of parents who publicly say that they care about what's going on in their kids' education, from a conservative standpoint, I wonder if that number is lower than in private because of how eviscerated parents are getting in the media. Yeah, no, that's, I agree with that too. Because I, I mean, if I'm a parent, I would care. Yeah. A lot. I Maybe would, I would I be would, one of those. Yeah. Stand up I don't know. <laughs> you got a one in politics podcast, so I don't know. <laughs> this is about as public um, as it gets. Yeah. No, but yeah, that was one I hadn't thought of. So that's, that was a really good takeaway from it. The takeaway that the study had, I think it was called quiet, uh, self-silence, self-silence opinions. And the whole argument from the study is that the way people feel privately is going to be the way that people feel publicly in 10 years, 20 years later on. And so if you think about the topic of immigration, if you were polled on that 15, 20 years ago, you might have said you didn't care about illegal immigration publicly because it wasn't a hot topic. Privately, you might have had stronger opinions. Now we're in an environment where everyone feels very extreme one way or another publicly. And that's probably similar to how people felt privately 
mm-hmm. back then, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like the media kind of brings out the more sensationalized views on either side. Yeah. That prime the younger generations who are watching the media as they grow up to like develop their own value system. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really interesting study. There's a lot to take from it. And I'm not a scientist or a political scientist, so mm-hmm. I don't know what the best takeaway is from it. But I think it's it's like one of those studies where you can come up with 15 different takeaways from it. But it's really interesting. And it's it's a hard study. We're talking about it. It makes sense in our head. But then if you were to ask me those questions, it's, just, it's weird. It's a lot of like subconscious type thinking. It really is. It's that. kind of like outlining what our subconscious does without us being all that aware of it. Yeah. No, I think this is super fascinating, and this has been a very intriguing conversation. Yeah, it was a good one. I think we were nervous the first time, and now we're kind of grooving a little bit. Yeah. And I don't feel afraid to be a little bit more direct about (laughs) some of my viewpoints. I mean, it's just there's so many issues where you can find common ground on, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. Totally. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your two cents and your thoughts on things because I really do feel like we have similar viewpoints on those issues across the board when you really dig deep. Yeah. You know, and it sucks that one side gets labeled one thing and the other side gets labeled something else. And it's just this really divisive culture. But, you know, as long as we can talk about it and have a debate and come to an understanding. Have you seen Shrek? No, I haven't. Yes, like, I have seen ogres Shrek. Ogres are like onions. There's <laughs> layers. Like <laughs> yes. every political topic is there's layers to it. And I agree. I think you and I could come up with potentially better uh, immigration uh, policy than and energy. current. And energy. We just did. I think a lot of people could. <laughs> yeah. Like I think a lot of people could sit down and come together and come up with, with something better than what's being done currently. But you know, we kind of went into that tangent about the perils of running for office and, and maintaining that power and continuing to stay in elected office. Like that has so much more of an effect into our country than we realize. I know we sit here saying it, but like it just does. Like it, it impacts so much. It um, does. And I, I think that's that's part of the reason is you and I don't have to go out and campaign for votes next week. Uh, I don't have to point the finger. Otherwise, at you. You I would have to. not said certain things <laughs> on this podcast, right? <laughs> so like true. we don't have to, so we can agree and come up with better issues. But the people that have to run for office, like can't necessarily mm-hmm. do that with everything, and that's not a great place to be if you're people that are in charge of running a country. Totally, we could make some real serious changes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dusty. Well, I so appreciate you coming on. Before we go, you have to rate the wine. Okay. So we were drinking the B-side Cabernet Sauvignon from the North Coast, and it's a 2018. Ooh, it says vintage on there. It was good. I don't know what I rated the last wine. I also don't know what this tasted like in comparison to the last wine. So Last time we did like a Pinot Noir. Okay. It was good. It wasn't like too fruity. It tasted good. It reminded me of the trip I went on last weekend. <laughs> so I'm gonna give it like a nine. Oh my gosh. We're killing it with the wines on this podcast. Yeah. Heck yeah. All right. Well, I agree. It's freaking good and definitely deserves a nine. Maybe we'll get sponsored by them one day. B-side. Yeah. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Dusty. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please give it five stars, write a review, share it with your friends, and yeah, hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dusty. Also, you're Dub Nasty on Instagram. Dub Nasty. Yeah. Dub Nasty. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Thank you.